Well, I count it a double blessing to be able to come and to preach here at Covenant Baptist Church, not once this year, but now twice. And so it's a joy to be with you, to see your faces, to fellowship with you as we worship the Lord. Well, if you would take your Bibles now and please turn with me to Psalm 86. This psalm if you know anything about the whole of the book of Psalms, is part of book three uh, in the Psalter. Uh, It's a section that runs from Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 89. It's a book that was compiled, put together, uh, likely around the time of the exile. It's a set, then, of 17 songs, expressive, we can say, of the grief, of the perplexity, of the questions, yet also of the faith, and the hopes, and the longings of God's people. For it was a time of devastation. Devastation like the exile after the capture of the king, and after the destruction of the house of God in the old covenant, the temple. In other words, a time of crisis of faith. You may remember how this whole book begins. Uh, Book 3 begins in Psalm 73 with Asaph confessing that his feet had almost slipped when he looked at the wicked prospering. It wasn't until he entered into the sanctuary of God that his perspective was regained. The very next Psalm, Psalm 74, begins this way, O God, why... Do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? He goes on to call upon God to have regard for the covenant that he has made with his people. You see this whole series of these 17 psalms, it's, it's like a playlist that you put on maybe your iPhone. When you are in the midst of difficulty. And you know how it is, I remember... Uh, even as a teenager, having friends at times, when I was in times of darkness or depression, making, at that time, cassette tapes <laughs> uh, with series of songs to speak to my heart. And so this is God's playlist that he's put together for his children to listen in the time of their exile. And brothers and sisters, it's also a playlist for us. Amen in our time of exile, which is this time here on the earth. It's meant to teach us, to instruct us how to commune with God in these times of despair and distress. And this morning, then, we come to consider one of those songs that's actually unique in this third book because it's a psalm of David. Now, you know, David wrote probably half, around half of the psalms in the whole of the Psalter. But here in book three, this is the only psalm of David. In a book that's characterized by corporate psalms, this stands out as an individual prayer. And so it's our privilege to overhear one of God's saints at a low point and how he wrestles with God in prayer. So follow along with me as I read read the whole of this psalm. Hear now God's holy word. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, 
for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Pray together again briefly. Lord, you've taught us in your word that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, we confess again that in ourselves our hearts are not pure, but through the work of your Spirit you have given to us new hearts. We pray you would continue to sanctify our hearts through this word this morning and give us purer hearts by your Spirit that we might see you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So have you ever felt under such duress, under such trial, that you don't even know what to pray to God? Or even more so, have you ever felt so disoriented, so lost, so discouraged, that you don't even want to pray to God? seem like your whole world is crumbling around you and you don't seem to have the strength to even do anything even get out of bed in the morning well beloved while we don't know the exact historical context of David's prayer here this seems to be the case the situation with him he's in distress and we see him wrestling with himself to encourage himself to even begin to pray his heart and mind have been in some kind of fog and, and he feels as though his prayers aren't getting past the ceiling as we say. And so he fights. He fights to regain perspective and to pray. Well, this certainly then would have been instructive to the Israelites during the exile and even those who just returned from exile to a very disheartened situation of a dis decimated land even as they seek to rebuild the temple, even facing opposition even then, facing persecution 
This is a psalm to teach them how to think, how to pray, and it instructs us as well as we go through our trials. So this morning, we can learn at least these three things, I'm sure there are more, but three things from this psalm about what we should do in times of duress, times of struggle, times when we feel distressed. The first thing is this. Rouse yourself to prayer with biblical arguments. Wrestle with your own soul by bringing God's word to bear upon your soul. And that's exactly what we see David doing. You see, sometimes we don't feel like praying to the Lord and we wonder if God will even answer if we do come. So discouraged, we don't think clearly. We wonder if God would even listen to the likes of us. Would he listen to me when I'm wrestling even to want to pray? So we can think, why pray? And it's at times like this, beloved, that you must do as the Puritan said, and pray until you pray. Yes. Yes. Pray until you pray. What does that mean? D.A. Carson gives us some help in his helpful book on prayer. He says this, this is Puritan advice. But it does not simply mean that persistence should mark much of our praying, though it, admittedly that is a point the scriptures repeatedly make. But what they mean is that the Christian should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. That if we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God and in His presence and we rest in His love to cherish His will. Even in dark or agonized praying, we somehow know we are doing business with God Himself. So we must pray until we pray. And that's how David begins and continues. And he gives us a a portrait, a picture of what it looks like to pray until you pray. And that means you begin with these biblical arguments of why you should pray and why you should believe God will answer you. So notice how David begins. He rouses himself to prayer first with arguments focused upon himself. What does God say about me? He says in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now think with me for a moment about David. This is David speaking, the Lord's anointed king in Israel. This is David who Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his tens of thousands. And the people loved him and sang songs about him. And yet, Even David needed to come to see his true condition. He's not mighty. He is not self-sufficient. No, he is poor and needy. Charles Spurgeon in his great commentary on the Psalms, the Treasury of David, says this, The best of men need mercy and appeal to mercy, yea, to nothing else but mercy. Sadly, Brothers and sisters, far too often the root of our prayerlessness is found right here. We do not rightly see or feel our true condition as poor and needy. 
we have not learned what the hymn writer says when the hymn writer writes, I need thee every hour. We think we can go hours and sometimes days in our own strength. But David, as all sinners must, had to learn this lesson for himself. He speaks of this in another psalm, in Psalm 30, verses 6 to 8. He says this, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You ever said that? By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. You see, he had to learn. No, no, you're not the one that keeps yourself. God is the one. In his prosperity, in times when things were going well, that's when he thought, I'm self-sufficient. He fell to the same sin of Nebuchadnezzar looking out on his kingdom. My arm has done all of this. David thought the same thing. But when the Lord brought adversity, when he brought trial, when he hid his face, then David saw his need and he cried out to the Lord for mercy. And this, beloved, is where we need to remember it is actually the Lord's mercy to make you feel your need for mercy. To humble us. Calvin, in his great little booklet, the golden booklet on the Christian life, if you haven't gotten it, if you haven't read it, get it. Read it. And listen to what he says. Unless our own weaknesses are regularly displayed to us, we easily overestimate our own virtue being by nature inclined to attribute all good things to our own doing. There's no better method for God to curb such arrogance than by demonstrating to us through experience our weakness and frailty. He afflicts us with disgrace. He afflicts us with poverty, with childlessness, with illness, with other troubles. And we, for our part, quickly crumble before such blows, being far from able to withstand them. But thus humbled, we learn to call on his strength, which alone can make us stand under the weight of such affliction. No, it's not pleasant. It is painful for us, but it is God's mercy to make us feel our need of him so that we cry out to him for mercy, for we are poor and needy. But he continues his argument in verse 2 that God should preserve his life because David is in covenant with God. Pray because you're in covenant with God. It says there, preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Now the word godly is maybe not the best translation in this. It can be that. But it's actually literally the word beloved. It's hesed. Where he says, preserve my life for I am beloved. Hmm. Alan Ross in his commentary says this. This is a major covenant word in the Bible. Whoever is beloved belongs to the covenant of the Lord. And that covenant is characterized by God's hesed. The Lord's hesed. His steadfast love for his people. This does not mean that David is sinless. 
nor does it mean that he is perfect. What it means, as we've heard already, he's poor and needy, but he is one of God's covenant people. One who has been brought into God's own heart. A servant of the Lord who has genuine faith and trust in the Lord and knows the Lord as his master. You may note there's seven times in this psalm where you see Lord in lowercase, capital L, then lowercase O-R-D. That's the word Adonai. You are my master, Lord. You brought me into this relationship with you. But you also see there's three other times or four other times where it's Lord all caps, which is the covenant name, Yahweh. You are my covenant Lord and my master. He can say to him, you are my God and I am one of your beloved people. You see, because David is bound to God by his covenant, he knows that he can come to God in prayer and God will answer him. Yes. He will answer him. Yes. And dear Christian, this is true of you as well. If you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. Is that not what Jesus taught us when he taught us to pray, Our Father. Our Father. You're not alienated from God. You are his child. And think about what kind of father he is, a father that's so attentive to your every need that he knows what you need even before you ask him for it. A father who's not obliged as God your creator to answer but has bound himself to you so he yes. is obligated to yes. answer yes. by way of covenant. Amen. And his very nature as our Father is one who's full of grace, who delights to give good gifts to his children. So cry out, persist, come to your Father because it's your Father whom you're going to. But he goes on. Not only is he poor and needy, not only is he a beloved child of God. Verse 3 we see that God should be gracious to David because he is crying out to him all day. There is an asking, there is a seeking, there is a knocking, there is a persistence. David's not silent, but he's pleading, he's begging for God's grace. And then you also see in verse 4, this argument that God should gladden his soul because, David says, I have lifted up my soul to you. To you, I lift it up. What does he mean by that? What is he saying? This is language showing that David desires God above all else. You see, those who worshipped idols, they would lift up their soul to their idol. Here, David is saying, I'm not lifting my soul up to anyone else, anywhere else. I'm coming to you and you alone. You're the only one who can satisfy my soul. I'm entrusting myself wholly to you, O God. So therefore, answer me. Beloved, there's no one else that we can truly turn to besides the Lord. So lift up your soul to him. Yes. Pour out your soul to him. 
He knows your distress. He knows your sorrows. He knows your anguish. And He's calling you then to come and pour out your soul to Him. Rouse yourself with these kinds of arguments. But not only arguments about what the Word of God says about you, but also David continues to rouse himself to prayer with arguments focused on God. And he's reminding himself why God must and will answer him. So in verse 5, he says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Pray, he's saying to his soul, because God is a God who's good and forgiving. God is the source and the standard for all that is right and good. And he will do what is right in relation to David. As the God who is the source and standard of all that is good, that means he is just. He is the standard of what justice is. And because we come to one who is a just God, he will hear our cries without partiality. He will not be like the unjust judge who doesn't care about the widow who keeps coming. He will not be like one who receives bribes. No, he is perfectly just. But as the judge of all the earth, he is also God of mercy. God of mercy who forgives sinners who come to to him. He's he's tender-hearted. He goes on and says in that verse, God will answer because he's abounding in steadfast love. This is no trickle kind of love dripping out of the faucet. This is a waterfall flowing over. Abounding. The very character and nature of God is what's spoken of here. You are the Lord abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Where have you heard that kind of language before? Moses. Remember how he's, he's asking, Lord, show me your glory. And what, what, what does God do but puts him in the cleft of the rock and causes his glory to pass by? And what is that glory? What is the revelation of that glory? The revelation of that glory is this statement from the Lord. I am the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving the iniquity of those who love me to a thousand generations. And you need to remember what happened two chapters before in the book of Exodus. But the great sin of the golden calf. It's in the midst of Moses interceding on behalf of the Israelites that God would not leave them or destroy them. That he's given this revelation that he is the God who is abounding in steadfast love and forgiving. He's a forgiving God. Don't think that because you have sinned, you cannot go to God. Amen. Amen. That's when you need most to go to God. This side of the cross, we know that God is a forgiving God. If you remember in the midst of that intercession of Moses up on the mountain, part of what he does is he says, Lord, if you will not forgive, blot out me. 
that you would stay with your people. He, Moses offers himself to be the atoning sacrifice. And do you remember what God says? No. Uh, you're not worthy. <laughs> you're not able. But even in that, it's pointing forward to the one who is. And this side of the cross, we know who that is. That our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave his body and blood so that you and I can be forgiven. It's a forgiving God. Because of this, then he comes in verses 6 and 7 and says, God will answer because he is a God who hears and answers his people. You think about how David wrote this song, and his, his mind is going back to the book of Exodus. He's thinking about Moses. You're thinking about how Moses interceded. Moses prayed in that great moment of sin in Israel. Not only then, of course, if you think about the book of Numbers, over and over and over again. And God answered. And he remembers the faithfulness of the Lord. If, if the Lord answers Moses all those times, he will answer me. Because he's the same faithful God. You will answer me. And you see, we now know God answered David. So what an encouragement. Encouragement for us, beloved, to pray to our God, our faithful, covenant-keeping God who's proven himself over and over and over again, not only the history of his people, but also in your own life. Isn't that true? Do you ever stop and take stock of all the ways God's answered your prayers? Such an important thing to do. And to see and to rouse your soul to go to God and pray. So that's the first thing we learn. We need to to wrestle with ourselves, rouse ourselves to prayer with biblical arguments. But then as you're praying, you're going to pray until you pray. And we need to then, secondly, regain perspective of the grand vision of God's glory. Regain perspective of the grand vision of God's glory. You see, as he's praying and arguing, in the midst of this, he's thinking about himself as God describes him. He's thinking about God as he's revealed himself. David goes on then to contemplate the greatness of God and his glory in verses 8 to 10. He says there in verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. He's thinking about the uniqueness of God. There is no God like you. The gods of the nations are no gods at all. They have no power, no strength, no ability. But you are God. The uniqueness of God. But then you also see him saying, And as the only true God, you're the God who's done wondrous works. Yes, you created the world. It wasn't time and chance and matter just coming together. You created, you brought it all together. But not only did you do this amazing work of creation, when your people, the crown of your creation fell, you have made a way of redemption. And with the nation of Israel, you redeemed them from slavery in Egypt in this wondrous way, bringing all of these plagues and bringing them out through the Red Sea. You did this wondrous work unlike any other God, because all other gods are false. Yes. 
And you see, as he's thinking on who God is and on what he has done, he's then caught up into the ultimate purpose of God in the work that he's doing in this world. Verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. He is caught up in the grander vision of what God is doing. That God will actually draw people from all nations to come and worship Him. Even like we heard in Psalm 117. Mm -hmm. The nations will come. Mm -hmm. This is David, an Israelite king, saying this. That they will come and bring glory to God's name. It's amazing how David had this expansive worldwide vision. But then again, beloved, that has been God's vision purpose from the beginning. That was Adam's task. To cause the garden to go and cover the whole earth and to fill it with other image bearers that the whole world would be those who worship the true and living God. This was what he said he would do with Abraham, that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing not only to Abraham's ethnic children, but his spiritual children, that all the families of the earth should be blessed. It's remarkable, especially when you think about how this psalm was compiled in this section of 17 psalms in the midst of this crisis in which the nations have come and overwhelmed Israel. The nations have come and destroyed her temple. But that's the point. This Psalm of David is chosen to put in this collection to remind God's people of what God is doing at that very moment in history. That at that point... David helps them regain perspective, helps them to put their trials in perspective. It's helping David, this trial he's going through, to put it in perspective that it's small in comparison to the grand scheme of what God is doing. Because nothing, absolutely nothing, will keep God from accomplishing his great goal. And here's the thing that David was learning, that Israel was learning, that we need to learn, that God will even work in ways that at first seem contrary to his purposes, to accomplish his purposes. Think about what the Israelites must have been thinking. Why would God send us into exile in Babylon if we're supposed to be a light to the nations? And they're supposed to come and worship. Why would God allow the temple to be destroyed? If they're supposed to be brought in and worship in that way, why would God do this? It's part of His purpose. Part of His purpose to prepare the world for the fullness of time. That as the Messiah comes, lives, dies, ascends to heaven that there are synagogues all over the world because God's people have been scattered for God's servants to go and proclaim the gospel so that the nations will come in do you see it's astounding 
This is actually, it's amazing. The very next psalm is about that very thing. Psalm 87. Notice verses 3 to 6. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. In the Israelite mind, that's, that's Zion, that's Jerusalem. Glorious things are spoken about you. But then it goes on to say in verse 4, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, which in Old Testament language refers to Egypt. Uh, to Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Do you see what He's saying? All these who are from the surrounding enemy nations of Israel will come to Zion and be those who are now counted as those born in Zion as God's people. It's the Gospel going forth. That's what we know is fulfilled in the New Covenant. You see, beloved, what you need to recognize is God has far-reaching purposes for what He does that we cannot always see in our moment, in our even lifetime. And He has purposes for what He's doing even in the difficulties and trials that He's taking you through. You see, we see this most clearly, don't we, in the cross. You think about the disciples who scattered and then they're watching from a distance. I thought he was the one. Peter confessed, you were the Christ, the Son of the living God. But now they look on and say, why would God allow him to be crucified? This doesn't make sense. And they learn that this is the way. That God redeems His people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And maybe even as a church this morning, you're, you're wondering the same question that I often wondered. Why would God send away another family <laughs> from our congregation? Why would He do such a thing? As takes some people that we've grown to love so dearly away from us in this our time of exile on the earth. And you may not see why, but the Lord has His purposes. And some of those purposes are take, to take His people, to move him to them to another place, that through them, more from the nations would come and worship Him. Yes. We have no idea who the Avalados are going to meet, but the Lord knows. And He has already decreed those divine appointments. And that's why he comes with that vision in verse 10 and says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Thank God you and I are not God. We don't know how to make all these things fit together. But he does. And he is working all things together for his good purpose. David then after he's had this immense expansion of his vision to the grand purposes of God's glory to bring in the nations, he then turns to consider his own needs again in light of God's glorious vision. 
And that's what he does in verses 11 to 13. He himself longs to be among those who worship and glorify God. And so he says, Lord, teach me your way, that in the midst of my distress I would rest in understanding your way is not my way, but your way is perfect. Mm -hmm. Teach me your way, Mm -hmm. and then teach me how to walk in your truth. And he says, if I am to do this, I know I need something, and this is what I need, a united heart that fears your name. Give me a heart that's not divided, a heart that isn't double-minded, a heart that isn't idolatrous loving this world, but give me a pure heart, a single-minded heart that has the pure and simple devotion of Christ as my one desire. Teach me, O Lord, unite my heart to fear your name filled with reverence, filled with awe. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Teach me, he says, like Job, to be able to say in my distress, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. And the result you see then of this united heart that is not hedging your bets by holding on to parts of this world, hedging your bets by still having a little bit of this idol. No, you go all in in the Lord. The result of such a united heart is a heart that's filled with thanksgiving. You don't have reason to complain. You're filled with gratitude says in verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I glorify your name forever. But what's the source of such a heart? How can we have such a heart? Verse 13, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. God is the one who takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of light. God is the one who takes out that heart of stone and gives that heart of flesh. God is the one who takes the scattered, disparate parts of your heart and puts it all together Mm -hmm. in one. Mm -hmm. And is this not amazing that David's heart and mind would be drawn to this request where he says that you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, from the grave. Again, it's a sense where he, he recognizes longing, this great vision of worshiping the Lord with the nations is before him. It's as though he's reading Revelation 7, where God speaks about people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language before the throne of God and the Lamb worshiping him. And he says, I want to be there with them. Unite my heart to fear your name. And so, after rousing your soul to pray, and as you're praying until you pray, that's when you regain perspective of the grand vision of God's glory and the mercy and grace of God to take your life and put it in that story. But then the last thing that we see is finally you come to the request. He requests the grace that he needs and teaches us to request the grace you need for your specific trial. So he's gone to the grand vision, but he comes back to the specific issue 
that he's dealing with. You notice it there in verse 14. This is, this is the first time we finally hear what the specific trouble is. He's been distressed, but why? It's not until you come to verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Well, this could be any number of times in David's life. We don't know exactly when it was. It could have been when Saul was pursuing him to kill him. It could have been uh, when the Philistines were fighting against him. It could have been when his own son Absalom was coming to kill him. Whichever one it was, he comes back then to this specific situation. He brings the situation before the Lord, pours it out before the Lord, and then reminds himself once again by, of who God is, grounding his request in God's character. He goes back to Exodus 34, verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, I'm coming remembering who you are, and as I remember who you are and who you have been for your people throughout the ages, I come now then with this request for this specific trial. And he asked for three things. You see it? First thing he says is this, Lord, give me the grace of strength. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Fortify me in the midst of this trial. I need your strength. I cannot do it on my own. I need the grace of strength. Give me your strength to continue to persevere. Give me your strength to hold on to you in the midst of this trial. Give me your strength to continue to testify to your goodness and your love even when it seems as though you've forsaken me. Give me your strength to trust. Then he says, secondly, give me the grace of salvation and save the son of your maidservant. It's not only the grace of strength, but the grace of salvation, the grace to save him from his enemies. It is right for us to pray for, for deliverance, even from the difficulties and trials in this life. Now, it's not wrong. It's appropriate. Yes. It's right to pray for healing. Yes. It's right to pray that the Lord would give you favor with those who are taunting or ridiculing you, to deliver you from wicked men. That is good and right. Pray, yes, for strength, but it is right to pray for salvation from even the trials. It's important for us to see. Don't think that you are somehow super spiritual by just saying, I can continue in this trial and I don't need to ask to be delivered. No. Pray that God would save you from it. But thirdly, and perhaps most curious to us, he asked that God would show him a sign. Give me the grace of strength, the grace of salvation, but thirdly, the grace of a sign. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. You need to understand this is not like the Pharisees coming to Jesus saying, show us a sign. The Pharisees come not because they have any faith or trust in God. They come because they want to trip up Jesus. 
they come in unbelief. They're asking for a sign so they can find something that with which they can then arrest him. That's not what's going on here. This is not a sign asking for a sign because of unbelief. It's asking for a sign because of faith and because of his concern for God's glory. It's a genuine request. You notice it's not only or even mainly for himself, but so that his enemies would clearly see what God has done and glorify the Lord. He still has the grand vision in mind that all should glorify the Lord. It's a request, once again, concerned for the glory of God. Well, beloved, you see how many encouragements we have so many encouragements to come to God in prayer. How good is our God to give us gracious instruction in this Psalm of David about how we ought to pray in times of trial. And it reminds us that great David's greater son most likely learned from this Psalm how to pray in his times of distress. Many places we could turn, but just turn with me to, to, to John chapter 12. This is right before we come to the great upper room discourse, which is, of course, the night before Jesus is going to the cross. You remember how in the book of John, over and over, he's telling people, My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet. You know, tells his, his mother, Mary, when she says, You know, hey, they got, they got no wine. You need to help them with this. Woman, he says it tenderly. <laughs> My hour has not yet come. And then here, for the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, My hour has come. The hour has come. You notice it there in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what is he saying? The hour has come for his crucifixion. The hour has come for him to be that seed that dies and is put in the ground. It's finally here. And you imagine, you know, the distress of his soul in the midst of that reality. In his humanity, maybe there were moments of wondering, as we heard him pray in Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, Lord. Yes. Yes. Are you sure, Father, that this is the best and only way? <laughs> the trouble, the distress that he feels. And right after him saying that the hour has come, notice what he does in verse 27. He prays, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. You see his focus, just like in David. It's for the Father's glory. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God gives a sign. Notice what, 
what Jesus says about it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. A sign for them. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There's the great glorious vision. You see, I believe our Savior, as a young boy, going to synagogue week after week, and learning the Psalms, singing the Psalms, I believe that this is, at least in part, the psalm that's in his mind as he prays. Psalm 86. He was instructed in the time of his trouble that this is how I should pray. And the Father answered and strengthened him, gave him the grace. And we know ultimately, ultimately, that as he, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications without cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. And because he was heard, he was raised. And that's the greatest sign, isn't it? The sign of the resurrection. The sign where Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. He has been raised. What we celebrate every single Lord's Day as we come to Mount Zion, the nations coming to Mount Zion, we celebrate the resurrection. We see that our God is faithful to answer the prayers of His people. So beloved, whatever your trial this morning, whatever the difficulty you're going through, know that our God is still at work in your life, even through your trial, to bring about His ultimate purpose of bringing glory to His name. And for those of you who trust in Him, you are caught up in that. And you have interest in His glory as well. And we'll be caught up together with all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship Him forever. Father in heaven, how sweet it is to be able to say, Our Father. And to know that you hear us and you love us and you care for us. And we thank you that you do not leave us without instruction, but you've given us this, your word. Would you write it deeply into our hearts? Would you help us, even not only this day, but through the remainder of our time in exile on the earth, to cry out to you, to pray to you, to receive from you the grace of strength, salvation, to trust in the greatest of signs, the risen Son of God, that you would bring us all the way home to worship you forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.